Welcome to One of 200, the independent media and politics podcast. All of our co-hosts are in New Zealand this morning. Um, welcome welcome back, uh, Bronco. Hey, it's good to be back. Uh, and we've also got Philip. Kia ora. Uh, you're still here. I'm still in New Zealand. <laughs> yeah. uh, and Josephine, hey. Kia ora. Kia ora, everyone. So... Got some international news. We got some domestic news. Um, yeah, right, right here with with Hipkins in the prime ministerial role. We're starting to get a better idea of what Labour has on the table for us for the next nine months before the election in October, uh, and we'll get into that in a bit more detail uh, in the later half of the cast. But first, some international news. Uh, we wanted to touch on a topic which has hardly been covered uh, here in uh, little old New Zealand, which is the major, devastating, uh, horrific, ad, as many horrible adjectives as you want, earthquakes on the border of Turkey and Syria. Yeah, just so many people already confirmed dead, like thousands and thousands more missing. There are some of the biggest earthquakes ever in the area, like full-on building destruction, across a, a massive area yeah i know i the, the it's just a, it's an enormous humanitarian disaster uh and we've seen a little bit of coverage um about it here but maybe not to the extent that you'd hope Josephine, you were talking uh, a little bit about this earlier in the week on twitter do you want to give us a, a quick rundown of of what you're seeing in that space to be honest, Kyle, I've, I've been trying to avoid the horrific images that are coming from there. Um, it reminds me of the earthquake that happened in India in 2001, where hundreds of thousands of people lost their lives. And with the, you know, with the death toll steadily climbing, you know, it's just giving me the flashbacks of that, um, you know, uh, earthquake that happened in the state of Gujarat in the year 2001 in India. And it was horrific. Like each day, the, the zeros kept going you know kept climbing and yeah I can't even uh, begin to talk about the scale of the disaster but also we must remember that this is uh, this region has been subject to so this is a natural disaster but it has been subjected to you know human-made disasters and what I'm referring to is U.S. foreign policy in the region which has wreaked even more havoc, right? Like how many people have died due to the uh, to, uh, due to the war in Syria? Uh, it's in the hundreds of thousands, uh, the, the deaths and the displacements are in the million. So this region is not, you know, um, unfamiliar with disasters, but, you know, the scale at which these disasters are happening. And then right now for me, uh, what is sort of like um, really um, disturbing is to see these, messages of solidarity or you know we are with you to the people in this region when actually the um, the foreign policy of the west towards this region has been you know to be really kind to to use a kind phrase it has been really irresponsible and cruel and um it's not it does not um, uphold the humanity of the people over there. They are seen as collateral damage. They are seen as experiments. Um, you know, the United States has been arming the so-called moderate rebels in Syria, which include, um, you know, um, Al-Qaeda and their 
their branches over there have been armed and have been benefiting from U.S. intervention in this region. So um, the Western foreign policy in this region has been nothing so short of irresponsible to the lives of the people over there. So it's a it's, it, what we are seeing is a you know a combination of multiple crises in the region, which has been exacerbated again by uh, you know sanctions and. Uh, sanctions on a regular basis are already um, making the most marginalized people, the working class people, their struggle the most. It's not Assad that's suffering from the sanctions. It's the common people in Syria. And now, you know, aid agencies are unable and uh, to, uh, to um, operate fully there. We're unable to send our money there because of the sanctions that exist um, on the banks, on the financial institutions operating in Syria. So, um, so this is a, another big reminder for us about the impact of U.S. foreign policy on the global south and how Western countries, including New Zealand, are not speaking up uh, to support the people in these regions. So that is, uh, you know, my main concern in relation to this issue being in New Zealand. Yeah, yeah, Syria's kind of in a um a bit of a stuck between a rock and a hard place because the civil war means there's, there's political divisions within the country. So that means, you know, Assad, for instance, there's there's government controlled areas, there's areas controlled by rebels, there's uh areas also controlled by turkey and occupied by u.s forces um and that also means that that's made it over the years difficult for aid to come through assad doesn't necessarily want to to give aid uh to to the rebel uh held areas at the same time uh border crossings through turkey um have been shut because of uh well uh, basically it's been they've been shut through the un russia's you know supporting assad and ally kind of um, ended up closing off these these uh, crossings. There was only one crossing actually functioning between Turkey and, and Syria, and that was damaged by uh, uh, the earthquake. So um, very little opportunity for aid to come through. Meanwhile, you know, the, the EU and the US, they don't want to send aid through uh, uh, Assad um, because they worry that it's going to get siphoned off by you know, uh, through corruption and, you know, it's going to get uh, uh, diverted to different places, you know, places that maybe they don't want it to go. So the aids are going to come through there. And meanwhile, also, as, as Josephine says, there's also U.S. sanctions and, and EU sanctions on the country, which makes it, uh, even though they say, you know, there's humanitarian uh, exemptions, uh, exemptions to humanitarian aid, that, that is true technically. But the problem is that once enforced in practical terms, what these sanctions end up doing is they make it very hard for aid agencies to operate because it can mean things like um, basically uh, companies over comply uh, with sanctions. They, they go out of their way to avoid being um, penalized. They just stop doing business entirely. So money can't go through, you know, GoFundMe wasn't sending through people's donations to, to, to Syrian uh, earthquake victims, for instance. Um, you also have uh, uh, problems like, I mean, for instance, if aid organizations want to, set up basically to do anything you know practical terms in syria they might end up kind of dealing with the business of someone who is sanctioned um because you know the, the, that's just the, the the reality of the regime over there and so that means it's actually you know in practical terms it's very hard for them to operate the, the good news is that you know i mean we can't do much about you know we can't we're not going to solve the civil war in syria overnight we're not going to change assad's behavior or, or russia's behavior but 
as, as Josephine correctly says, what we can do is um, push for these sanctions to be temporarily lifted. And, and you know, thankfully, um, the Biden administration did yesterday put um, an exemption um, on, on sanctions for earthquake relief. Um, now, given everything I've said, it remains to be seen what kind of impact it's going to actually have. But it's worth noting that the fact that it did so goes against all the arguments that people were making. And I saw many of these arguments over the last, uh, you know, three, four days saying, oh, the sanctions have absolutely no, oh, there's no effect on, on, on humanitarian Just an insane thing to say, by the way. Completely irrelevant. Well, okay, apparently the Biden administration doesn't think so, otherwise they wouldn't have done these exemptions. You know, I mean, it was a, a completely spurious and ridiculous argument they were making because everyone, it's been well documented for years that, that these sanctions do inhibit aid. So the idea now that, that you know, they, they inhibit except for during a time of an earthquake um, is, you know, just just on its face, pretty absurd. So I'm glad to see that that has at least happened. We, we should stay vigilant and see, you know, what whether this actually makes as much of an impact as we hope. But but that is a good sign. at least. Can I just add one thing? Just that I remember this um, during Trump's administration, like most of the establishment were quite critical of his foreign policy. But then, you know, once he deployed the mother of all bombs in Syria and that you know, he got a lot of support from, um, you know, the media and from the establishment for that action. So to be really honest, United States and, you know, their allies really don't care about the lives in, in of people in the Middle East. Um, and also, we must remember that United States hasn't withdrawn military presence from Syria. It's still there. And it's controlling the regions which are the most oil rich. And it is stealing oil oil from Syria as we speak. And, you know, why can't they, what, what about upholding the sovereignty of a country and the territorial integrity of a country and the resources of a war-torn country are in the hands of, you know, the imperialist hegemon rather than uh, benefiting the people of that country. So these are issues that we must keep in mind when we think about Syria. I think it's one of these, and, and you know, we're going to see the situations happening more and more. You know, this is a a specific kind of natural disaster that is is not related to climate change um, with the earthquake, but we're going to see more climate-related uh, catastrophes, cyclones, flooding, fires, etc., that will also need major humanitarian relief. What we've seen is over the last, what, 100 years, this outsourcing, in the same way that it happens in domestic politics and economy, of aid and those kind of activities, humanitarian activities to charities and NGOs that allows states' foreign policy to be completely at odds with anything that actually helps these countries uh, while they're saying, oh yeah, don't worry, Red Cross is there. It shifts responsibility. It provides like a pressure valve for individuals and members of the public and civil society to say, oh, don't worry, I'm, I'm going to donate to Red Cross or whoever. All of these groups are, of course, like based in Western countries as well uh, and uh, have to work within, as, as Brunk was saying, they have to work within their sanctions regimes or whatever other framework uh, has been set up around these countries. And just like in domestic politics, do we want all that money, all those resources to be going to NGOs that are maybe ineffective or not able to do the work they need to do? Or is it better for that money to go straight to the people who need it? Um, and obviously in a, in a major uh, catastrophe like an earthquake, you often can't get that money to people and aid agencies are necessary, but governments are also necessary, you know, and some of the stuff just needs 
a lot more resource, a lot more uh, of a networked response. Like we're, this is this is just not going to be solved for for a decade. Like and, and that's that's just how it's going to be now, unless over over this time, the states of the world uh, get it into their fucking heads that this is going to need a concerted response. And as as Josephine was saying, like. Often the foreign policy needs, the the needs to wage war, um, the needs to use the imperial hege- uh, hegemony to take and control resources is is going to get out ahead of that and and stop uh, actual cooperation from happening where that's what we desperately need more than anything else. I mean, you know, the the Syrian government definitely is, you know, corrupt and 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 that aid is some of that aid is going to get siphoned off in corruption. But the the point is is that that in an emergency that doesn't matter i mean that unfortunately the the reality is a lot of countries that that get any sort of foreign aid a lot of it uh to different extents depending on what country I mean, it is the united states is, like yeah. rerouted a bunch of its COVID it's, funding to it's, private enterprise like stuff, it, it's it's unfortunately the name of the game that that the stuff is going to get stuff off in corruption the, the question is do you send absolutely nothing um and avoid any of it being siphoned off by corruption and therefore no help comes to people at all. Or do you send stuff, understand that the part of the cost of doing business here, that some of that stuff is not going to go where we want it to, but some of it is actually going to land and end up with the people that need it. And uh, obviously I think that the, anyone with, uh, you know, just the most basic moral calculus would say, yeah, the latter is, is, uh, uh it's a high you know, bar, Branko. Basic I, moral I mean, calculus. you know, I wish that we could live in a world where every single state and government was perfect and, and, you know, uh, uh was, you know, not corrupt and, 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 and did everything right, but that we don't live in that world. And, you know, the most important thing here is not about, you know, appearing to whether, you know, reward Assad or whatever have you. It's, it's, it's about actually helping the people that, that are desperately in need right now. When we talk about corruption, as uh, Carl was saying, like the U S is corrupt. What do we mean when we talk about corruption, right? The UK's uh, rerouting of funding for their COVID like private uh, enterprise stuff was like transparently corrupt. And yet, you know, if there were a, if there were a heartbreakingly destructive earthquake in the UK, we wouldn't hear that the UK government is too corrupt to donate money to. It's, it's like an, it's, there's an embarrassing kind of subjectivity to the way that we speak about corruption and the international media accepts this type of uh saudi arabia or egypt saudi arabia yeah or a billion other countries that we wouldn't hesitate to uh to to yeah yeah just wanna you know thank philip for saying this thank you philip for saying this point i want to reject this framing of looking at global south countries as corrupt like i mean i've had enough of hearing this we're living in New Zealand. Just yesterday, there was a report that one one point so many billion dollars from the government is just being given to private consultancies to do policies that don't even materialize. We are living in capitalist systems where corruption is legal. You're th- talking about like a country like United States, which is intervening in these countries, not for the interests of the people democratic interests of the people in the United States is for the profits of the of the military industrial complex, the oil lobby who's stealing oil from Syria. Like the most corrupt countries are standing and judging the countries that have been the victims of colonization, the victims of neo-colonial exploitation. 
whenever there is a left-wing movement in our countries that nationalize our resources, the West comes in and does a coup so that they can continue exploiting our resources like they did during colonization. And these are the countries that are saying that our countries are corrupt. On what basis are... I want to reject this framework, and I, I wish that the, the discourse moves on from looking at Global South countries as the, as the beacons of corruption. We, we're not. The most corrupt nations in the world are the Global North countries that continue to exploit our resources and labor and perpetrate war, not for the interests of the common people in the West, but for the interest of the military-industrial complex and the shareholders of the you know arms industries and the shareholders of the oil lobbies 100 100 <laughs> and we've no that's right um and we've talked about anti-corruption before as an ideology which i think is really interesting um the kind of intersection of right-wing anti-corruption as a i guess capital a capital c like anti-corruption as an ideology is i think a fundamentally kind of hollow and self-serving and fundamentally cynical kind of uh approach we talked about that with bolsonaro when he came in um, Duterte, like these these people who run against corruption as a you know a personality cult essentially. There's there's this kind of inherently cynical and self serving way of doing politics that doesn't it doesn't have at its heart any kind of conception of the common good or like values as we would think about them from the left, right? Even even left wing politicians around the world who've campaigned against corruption, I think that's mostly gone really badly. This is sort of a different conversation that we're getting into, but I think <laughs> it's a dangerous, um, it's a dangerous path, the, the corruption versus anti-corruption kind of debate, I think. Yeah. Yeah, to reiterate, the key point here is that when you hear arguments that you can't send this send aid because it's going to get siphoned off um, by, by corrupt people in any government, uh, which it will, that's not a good argument to not send aid to people in an emergency. But what's has been interesting, I think Josephine pointed this out very accurately uh, uh, earlier this week, which is that when you know people are being repressed in Iran, protesters, you know, fighting for for more uh, freedoms for women, we were you know quite rightly horrified at that. Um, but you know, suddenly we were we were well, first of all, we were hearing uh, very irresponsible hyperbole about the level of repression. I mean, you know, repression can be bad without us overstating the degree to which, which it's happening. Um, but we were also hearing basically kind of arguments for uh, regime change in, in Iran and people kind of going along with global uh, strategies to, to try and destabilize the Iranian regime as a, as a result of this, which, you know, would have been disastrous for the actual people, uh, regardless of that repression that was going on. You know, a vacuum of power is not a pleasant thing to live through. Suddenly, um, you know, there's no regime change that has to happen here. All that has to happen is sanctions have to be lifted. We have to send as much aid as we can, as much help as we can. People are quiet. Uh, there's no, I'm not hearing anything from, you know, MPs talking about, you know, let's let's do what we can, you know. Yeah, all are this, we sending all some army engineers there to help with your earthquake relief? Are we, yeah, I mean, you know, a like... lot of terrible stuff that gets justified on, on humanitarian basis. But then when it's just a purely humanitarian thing that we're calling for suddenly, or that, that is required, suddenly um, we don't quite have the same uh, level of concern for, for people in these countries. Um, and I think that's uh, something that's worth reflecting on, certainly for us and certainly for some of our MPs out there. Franco, you don't mean there's a geopolitical aspect to this crisis that we can take a side on? Well... No sides to be taken at all, I guess. Uh, we're paralyzed uh, and, and we can't do anything. I think the only thing I've seen um, from the from politicians here is Chris Hopkins was asked to stand up about it maybe two-thirds of the way through uh, a post-cabinet. Um, and he said, oh, that's pretty sad. Great. Thanks, mate. 
Thanks, thanks, Prime Minister. <laughs> well, I mean, remember, this is a country that, uh, what, how long ago? Nine years ago now? Uh, John Key was grandstanding about, you know, when, when there was talk of maybe sending uh, uh, troops into Syria, you know, John Key was up in Parliament saying, get some guts, as if, as if you know, John Key was going to be the one flying over down there and, and fighting people. So, you know, we, we're very happy. Apparently, some of our politicians are very happy to get up there and, and, and make a big point uh, when it comes to, um, if, if it comes to war, the, at least the idea of other people fighting a war for them um, seems like it's less attractive if the idea is just to stand up and say, hey, why don't we, uh, why don't we make it a little easier for ordinary people to live um, who are struggling under <laughs> this? Disgusting, uh, Bronco. Disgust, disgusting. <laughs> I'm also like just just uh, to add to that discussion about you know for example Iran and the response to Iran like one of the responses from our you know left wing party uh, in New Zealand was to um, you know try to uh, get the Iranian Revolutionary Guard a terrorist label, whereas none of such efforts are seen on on any of the state apparatuses or apartheid. I don't know what. <laughs> Of the United States, which, you know, which causes so much suffering, not only to globe people globally, but also their own people. Um, you know, there was a report out in January about the, the police killings in the year 2022. It was a record number of police killings that happened in the United States. Over 2,000 people um, died due to police violence in the United States last year. I didn't hear the Green Party or their, you know, foreign affairs spokesperson talking about this issue or asking them to be a designated a terrorist state or any of their military apparatus, for example. Should they be de designated a terrorist state? What about I the mean, New yes. Zealand's... Yeah. <laughs> Um, and Jacinda Ardern talking about a rules-based international order. Oh my God, um, <laughs> I hate this. Just like, sorry, I have to take that in. I, I need people to stop saying rules-based international yeah, order at good. this point <laughs> of like fucking history. It, it doesn't exist. And people keep using it to try and justify these insane things that don't even line up with the kind of foreign policy or international relations idea of liberalism even at this point. Like it's not real anymore. You can't just keep saying it as if that like explains away uh, any decisions being made by the United States military. It's, it's fucking ludicrous. Yeah, so the point is the sanctions and the special labels are, are reserved for countries in the global south and they don't apply to the, you know, dominant countries in the world. So this is interesting for me and it's an interesting point to consider. Let's move on. Uh, in, in the meantime, yeah, uh, keep an eye out on what's happening in, in Turkey and Syria. Yeah, it's, it's horrific. Don't go searching uh, for images and video if you don't want to see that uh, because it is, yeah, it's, it's horrible, horrible stuff. And I hope our own government can actually come out and and give some support uh to the region because it it sucks to keep hearing talk about new zealand um you know do what do you say pulling its weight or like doing taking actions that are, are, are bigger than than the country uh, might seem or whatever and just see them completely silent on, on this stuff it's it's really frustrating but let's let's move closer to home we've started to see a little bit of what chris hipkins might have in store uh, he did very early on, I think within, you know, at his first stand-up, say that there's going to be some reprioritization of their current policy platform. This was something that had even been mentioned by Ardern back in December, maybe late November. Uh, they wanted to refocus, uh, I think was the language used, 
uh, and ensure that they were doing everything they could around cost of living, uh, as opposed to some of their longer term read, more controversial um, or I, not even that. Some of, some of the the policy platform that had a lot more negative media uh, and political attention on it, we'll say. So Hipkins uh, had a presser uh, earlier in the week where he started to outline some of the things that were going to be uh, sidelined or or put on hold until after the election. Bronco, what did you what did you take from that? Um, I mean, some of the stuff he dropped made a lot of sense. Uh, the TVNZ, RNZ merger, no one, no one likes that. These are, I mean, to be honest, it, it the, the whole thing actually kind of reminded me of just uh, the bizarre choices that the Labour government made after winning this historic mandate in 2020. You know, that instead of using that to to actually do the transformative stuff that they promised, they picked these really, to me, quite strange, bureaucratic, technocratic kind of reshuffles whether it's the tvnz and rnz merger whether it was you know the the health uh, sector overhaul consultant bait uh, shit right like yeah stuff that wasn't you know necessarily making an actual difference in, in people's lives but just was kind of a a reshaping of 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 how things look and it was just and, and three waters to some extent is is i mean i think that's that's in a different category but but to some extent that that falls in the same thing and a lot of the times it was either kind of either very unpopular, as I think the TVNZ, RNZ merger was, or it just was not really clear to people why they should care about it um, and and why it actually made a difference uh, to their lives. I mean, I think with the health sector uh, uh, change up, I mean, I think that was just um, the nature of the, of, the, of the beast there. But with the uh, three waters, that just was, that was poor communication. There was not really a very good, um, uh, or not even an attempt really to, to explain to people what it was. And, and so, you know, it's not surprising to me that, that basically this, this you know, quote unquote policy bonfire, a lot of it was just kind of getting rid of stuff that was kind of policy dead weight. Um, you know, whatever you think about three waters, because of the fact that, that the communication on it was so bad, um, it it just became it's either something that people don't care about or people really don't like because um, of of various kind of misinformation about what co governance means uh, and when it's involved in it. You know what, what I'm disappointed about is if it was me, uh, I would have thought you know this is a great time to say hey look the the past government's gone, we're the new guys in town, and I know that they ruled out a bunch of stuff that that you know is actually pretty popular and people like. But hey, I'm it's a new sheriff in town and I'm going to uh, uh, do a, a bunch of stuff that was ruled out because I think it's a good idea. Like, say, maybe uh, imposing a windfall tax at minimum. You know, a bunch of people made a bunch of money during the pandemic. A lot of countries have done this, including uh, the UK, I believe. Um, yeah, we're going to like claw some of that back because the government needs revenue to, to help people through this cost of living crisis. And if we're not willing to go into debt for it, then, you know, why not? Why not um, draw on, on some of these massive profits that were made? Uh, it doesn't look like that's going to happen. It, it seems like it's it's, you know, mostly just getting rid of some unpopular things and kind of rerouting that money into some short term kind of um, funding boosts. But uh yeah, yeah, I would have that. That would have been a a more, um, I think, uh, uh, interesting thing to see. Yeah, it's all optics, right? They they're getting rid of stuff that is hitting the six o'clock news and that um, you know reactionary talkback hosts have been harping on about for a year or two, um, which mostly is not a big deal, and they've just done an extremely bad job of communicating it. Like you said, like the the three waters thing, uh, you can imagine a world where a 
Labour or national government just created like a, a new ministry of water and said, look, this is how we're going to do infrastructure um, and made it quite a bureaucratic argument. And zero people would care about that. It's just to clarify, though, food waters are still on the table. Like yeah, that's yeah, sorry to be clear. They haven't they haven't pulled three waters. Yeah, they're gonna they're gonna figure out some way to change it up, whatever that whatever that means. Yeah, it would be extremely difficult to go back to square one on three waters now that it's now that it's passed. They'll do some, I imagine they'll do like an interpretation document or they'll say, uh, to be clear, to clarify. <laughs> to be clear, we at Labour is just as racist as National Enact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They'll do the um the Phil Goff era uh Labour thing of going, we can we can also do racism, it's it's fine. Yeah, yeah. So this is how uh three waters is to be interpreted, or they'll, they'll change the constituency of those different governing bodies or some some bullshit like that, right? But yeah, other than that, the RNZ TBNZ merger. Like you say, Bronco, like nobody really liked that. The left didn't like it. The right didn't like it. It's not even kind of clear that from a, you know, technocratic centrist perspective that it would make sense. So it was a lot of that stuff was dead policy walking anyway. Um, it's it's bizarre that they haven't explicitly ruled out the um, light rail yet, as far as I can see, when that's clearly a dead policy walking as well. Maybe that's just Michael Wood, who knows, <laughs> pushing that barrow up the hill. But yeah, it's all meaningless kind of uh, bullshit that we didn't let, look. Let's be honest. Who expects any of that stuff to happen anyway? The stuff that's been cleared off the deck. We were all waiting for that stuff to die this year, right? Yeah. The other big one that's dropped out is social insurance. Um, they've pushed that back to sometime in the future. Like social what? Like no one had heard about this for the last 12 months. You know, it had been this big thing where they tried to use it to push back on Bill English's, what was he, what was he calling his social investment? uh shit but it, it's meant to be this great thing for workers and they just haven't like talked about it at all nothing's been happening with it well, and interestingly, said, no one cares about this so let's get rid that, of it that that is broadly criticized because from the left uh, and that includes us we've criticized it for the fact that you know it kind of basically privileges people who are who are working who yeah. instead of the you know people who are long-term unemployed and, and, and mm -hmm. poverty um and then on the right of course you know you've got people who um uh, you know, just obviously hate hate any sort of uh, government support for people in, uh, in in hard times, and see it as a handout. So, I mean, purely in the politics of it, kicking that down the road um, makes sense because you you kind of get um, multiple uh, opposed groups kind of not caring that much for the policy. Yeah, and I just wanted to say, like, it was a you know, um, what do you say? Grant Robertson's child, this uh, social insurance scheme, and a classic two-tier benefit system, which only benefits people who are on permanent full-time contracts. If you were on a casual contract, you wouldn't be eligible for this so-called social insurance scheme. And again, it is that neoliberal system of, you know, of of saying that people who have a job have more are des deserve more than you know general humanity in general so you have to be a wage slave in order to get any sort of you know um security from the yeah. system and it's such a it's such a insidious way to do things as well just look at what's happening with medical insurance in the states at the moment you know if you if you're relying on your employer to put you in a position where you can get support when you need it. That's just a, a, that's a bad place for workers to be as well. Yeah, glad, glad to see it go. Um, I, I don't think, though, that Labour thought about uh, the left uh, when, when getting rid of this, like, oh, yes, the left wing is finally not going to be able to push us on things. You know, that, that's not something that Labour um, really worries about uh, at, at this point. What's been really interesting is that 
you know, we're talking about all these bureaucratic framework changes and how they've been incredibly poorly communicated. Uh, it, it does seem that Labour does understand that it has a, an outright majority um, when it comes to this stuff. Uh, we can just do it. No one can do shit as opposed to the real transformative stuff. And people said, oh, they're not really acting like they have a majority. No, they are, just not in the ways that you'd hope they would. Yeah, this whole thing, it, it does look like optics. Uh, obviously, there are some very like uh, practical uh, outcomes of that. But as far as the first couple of weeks of Hepkins' tenure go, this is trying to show the public, look, safe pair of hands, he's doing the Bill English. Um, like this is like it maps directly onto onto what National did uh, when Key stepped down. Hopkins is a safe pair of hands. He's he's worked with multiple ministries. He's delivered, and he's going to continue to deliver. He doesn't he doesn't take shit. He's going to cut things where they need it. And he's going to focus on the things that really matter to New Zealanders. I mean, um, yeah, which is fine. He's like, basically running the same campaign as Luxon, right? That's what's frustrating about it is that like they're both running small target, meaningless kind of we can deliver on nothing kind of strategies. But yeah, as you've identified, like they they do know they have a majority, which is scarier. Like that that's worse for the left, I think. Like that's what we need to be more, I think, clear-eyed about than we have been is that like it's it's worse than the fact that Labour's too scared to do their like visionary policies is that they are doing their visionary policies. This is their vision. Like doing nothing is their vision. So like that is their actual <laughs> strategy. It's much worse. It's on, much- on the on the upside for Labour, because I mean like let's not let's not joke around. Like national would be significantly worse um in government. But Hopkins is trying to do what Luxon is doing, but he is the natural political space for doing that stuff. Yep. He's got a he's got a policy um workload that backs that up he's got experience that backs it up or at least he can use to back that up that Luxon just doesn't have and he sounds like he does where again Luxon does not Luxon's um, a, a bad campaigner I've been saying for a while like I think oh national, we know this yeah like national was always at risk this year regardless of how far ahead they were polling because Luxon can't campaign like he's not he's not a likable campaigner and as you get closer to an election that's when that kind of like trust metrics that people are starting to talk about will start to bite yeah. like believability like likability that's when that stuff will start I, like the fact that he stood up at a high school and got out twice in a, a row from a student twice yeah, he was a dickhead well, oh, yeah, uh, sorry what was boy. that you're a dickhead i mean you gotta you gotta give respect to that kid for oh, absolutely <laughs> after after he asked him to repeat it he could have just stayed silent but yeah uh, just as loud. What a king. What a king. All right. I will repeat it. <laughs> but like that, like, I, I don't know. I mean, national are desperate. Like what, what that desperation drives them to either sticking with Luxon or not. I, it's anyone's guess, but he, Luxon can't keep the leadership. You can't, you can't, we talk about bad optics. It doesn't get worse than that. Honestly, like he would like a lot of the stuff he was doing was already incredibly bad. So having to walk stuff back within hours and then walk it back again within another couple of hours and in a single day, this is like a a common thing that happens to Luxon when he's interacting uh, with the media, um, who are who are pretty like happy to if I'm if I'm being charitable, they're giving him rope, um, but really they're just pretty friendly with him uh, a lot of the time. Although that's shifting as well now. They're like getting that blood in the water kind of thing going on now. Hepkins is less of a target than Ardern was. It's going to get nasty for Luxon. Uh, and I think we're going to start seeing that. And, and this all this all benefits Labour and Hepkins with a do nothing, um, steady as she goes campaign coming into October. Yeah, just um, about the you know policy 
bonfire. Another major issue around that is, you know, the um, the amount of wealth transfer that's occurring from, you know, the public money into the hands of private consultancy groups like no Deloitte. Outcomes. Yeah, with no outcomes like Deloitte, KPMG, Ernst & Young, PricewaterCoopers, I think they're called. These are the big four consultancy groups and they're getting millions from, from taxpayer money. Hundreds of millions. Yeah, and last year's bill was $1.244 billion. Um, dollars. Um, and that was up by 30% from the pre previous year. So there's a, and just think about these companies, Deloitte, you know, um, Ernst & Young, these sorts of companies are there to, um, to help big corporations avoid taxes, and how to, you know, um, present their account books in a way that they can, um, you know, basically hoodwink our system and pay the least amount of taxes possible, and how to maximize their profits by reducing, say, for example, cutting their employees, um, laying off employees. This is what these big consultancy groups are there for. They are new neoliberal capitalist institutions that do not do anything productive in the economy. Um, they are high paid you know, um, executives. And most of them, interestingly, I'm doing research on it right now. Most of them are, most of the top executives in these uh, in these companies are coming out of the public sector. Yeah. So like former advisors of ministers, um, former policy analysts and policy advisors, these sorts of people then going you know, going into the private sector and becoming consultants and, you know, canvassing and, you know, hustling for public sector um, contracts for these sorts of um, policies. So we must wonder what is going on here behind the scenes. Um, there is a huge lobbying infrastructure, which is basically like people out outside, you know, coming out of the government, going into lobbying, going into consultancies and making a lot of money out of it. So we need to, I think, pay attention to that. And also to your point, Kyle, uh, earlier that, you know, um, national would be much worse than labor. I mean, yeah, in many, in many ways they are. But when you think about the situation of the left, how robust the health of the left in New Zealand, I think actually labor is a worse impact on um, left-wing movements than national. And the reason I'm saying that is because um, voters who voted for Labour thinking that they're going to address their issues see that their issues aren't addressed so they uh, are susceptible to moving towards you know alt-right or uh, you know or even national so Labour is really detrimental to the left in New Zealand the way they are going um, you know re-emphasizing neoliberalism not doing anything like this is billions of dollars uh, worth of money going into the hands of the private sector through multiple channels. Imagine if they invested this money into housing, into our health sector, you know, universal uh, dental care, these sorts of things could be covered. And instead, they're simply giving millions to the private sector. And this includes people like Michael Wood, who also, you know, came up with some policy ideas and gave contracts to private consultants. So he, he spent 51 million on consultants to develop his Auckland Harbour cycling and walking bridge project. Uh, and it got abandoned once it was obvious that it was not going to work out. So 51 million of taxpayer money going into the hands of some private consultants. So yeah, something to pay attention to. Yeah, and it's like a a clear example of the way that neoliberalism has just stripped any or presumably any expertise out of the public sector 
So that they're, they're having to go somewhere else. Like just have the expertise in-house. Like that should just be within the ministry. What's the point of a ministry if it's not able to develop policy and projects? And the the numbers are just going up as, as these relationships are made uh, and consistently used. Like, okay, cool. Just chuck it to PwC. They'll get something done for us. And as we've said, with no guarantee that there'll be a practical impact of that. It might just get chucked in the bin. Yeah, we also we'd be remiss uh, not to mention uh, uh, some of the, the the positive things that are uh, included in the in the announcement. Which was, look, I don't uh, want any fucking balance here, Bronco. Uh, <laughs> well, there was a, there was a one time boost to Farmac. There was a raise to the minimum wage, which is not nothing. Uh, there was um, what five million dollars to um, for for businesses affected by floods. But I mean, you know, even to list this stuff is kind of to, I think, a touch on how how basically the Hipkins government, the new Labour government, is kind of just doing as, as the bare minimum. I mean, you know, it's great the Farmac gets a one-time boost, but it's a one-time boost. It's it's a it's literally just a thing that's going to happen one for this year, I, I suppose, to give them a, a sort of a headline grabbing uh, thing to go into the election with, you know, the minimum wage, I mean, a dollar 50 is great, but it's not really good enough. It's, it's, you know, uh, I think what the, the, it's still lower now than the living wages um, officially. So uh, they're, they're sort of very much in line with the, uh, the Ardern approach, uh, you know, doing just skating, skating on the, on the surface of the water. Um, and I mean, at the same time, they're probably assisted by again how the opposition is in a complete shambles with uh, Nicola Willis saying that you know she would oppose the minimum wage. So you know Hipkins can get away with uh, such a paltry uh, increase to, to to people's wages because his opposition does things like this where they take a, a a deeply unpopular extreme view on the other side. I don't know. Maybe maybe on a on a matter of degree maybe i disagree i think i was surprised that they increased the minimum wage they'd already done a historical increase to minimum wage relatively recently even by a new zealand labor government kind of standard i was i was definitely surprised that they increased it as much as they did as a percentage it's quite big but as you say like all of this is within the context of over 7% inflation right so these numbers are really just you know treading water but it is i i was still surprised that Hipkins would, you know, with a kind of, he seems to be sort of on the center center right of the Labour Party from what we can see about his kind of background and positions. And I was, I don't know if that, I'd be interested to hear from Labour Party people if there was some kind of internal politicking around that, um, because it hadn't been signaled from Robertson or Ardern last year mm -hmm. that there'd be more movement on minimum wage. And sure, there's obviously been a cost of living crisis that they've been discovering and i mean discovering discovering we've been talking to consultants and they seem to think we're doing some uh investigation the consultants had that we pay we paid them a hundred million dollars and we've been doing some investigation um to see what's out there um in the economy and they've discovered there's this cost of living crisis what should we do pwc is telling us that there's a cost of living crisis yeah i'm not gonna believe it until we have an inquiry yeah but this is the thing right like we're joking about it but this is like the nature of political conversation like and what's possible like oh um and then even when it is like they've got all these experts they do the welfare expert advisory group right they're like oh we do 
we need to find out first. We need to find out exactly how bad the problem is before we can do anything about it. Um, because we couldn't just give money to people that need yeah. it, that we know need it. We can't just give money to them. So we're, we're going to find out exactly why and how they need it. And we've got a hundred or so recommendations and we're not going to do a single fucking one. So fuck, <laughs> because, fuck it's political. because it's fundamentally political, right? Yeah. It's not technocratic. But to, to Philip's point, there is something there in the sense that, you know, given Hipkin's background, um, the, the fact that, that he does seem to be responding to some extent to, to kind of, you know, demands from the left, um, you know, not, not going as nearly as far as, as, as any of us or I think even, even like really people need, um, but nonetheless is somewhat responding to it. That maybe, may, I don't want to speak too soon, but maybe signals some sort of um, shift in political incentives in yeah. New Zealand. Or at least like the incentives as politicians see it. At the end of the day, I mean, you know, a lot of politicians are career-minded. They're, they're not necessarily doing stuff out of principle. And if they do things that we see as, as, you know, the right thing for the country because they see it as in their political interest to do it, that's a good thing. If someone like Hipkins believes that this is actually in his interest, uh, in the interest of, of his political career yeah. to pursue that that is something that we should welcome. You know, hopefully that's not just something that that happens this one time. Hopefully we see more of this kind of thing, you know, going into the election. Yeah, I just wanted to add a couple of things there. Um, first of all, uh, about labor doing the bare minimum, you know, to appear to be on the side of working class, I think they're not doing the bare minimum. They're doing less than minimum. And, you know, just think about the urgency of the situation that we're living in. That is the important thing. So it's, I don't think we should say that they're doing, they're doing less than bare minimum. You know, if the we are in an omni crisis, housing crisis, environmental crisis, uh, poverty crisis. People are lining up in the food bank. I was seeing a big line in front of the, you know, the, uh, the food bank in, in Wellington yesterday as I was walking past. It's proper crisis that we are facing and this is less than bare minimum. And also thinking about the increase of the uh, minimum wage, it also, there were some calculations of how, what impact that has on their income tax because it crosses over to the uh, wage limit for the 30% income bra um, tax bracket. And um, there was some analysis done on Twitter uh, by Labor Cartel, have a look, um, about how this impacts the, the amount of tax, the percentage of tax uh, minimum wage workers are giving. So it kind of cancels out a lot of the benefit of increase in minimum wage. And so we should also push for looking at other means of taxations, uh, such as land tax or wealth tax. Um, so yeah, so there are many holes to this policy, even though it's it's slightly positive. And also thinking about Chris Hipkins, like the first engagement he chose to do after he was sworn in yeah. um, as, as prime minister was to go to fly to Auckland Chamber of Commerce the very next day. Shaking first... the sun and bridges. <laughs> Yes. And like I was watching New Zealand six o'clock news, um, you know, those days regularly because of the political movements that were happening, which Simon Bridges was in news way more than the prime minister. It seems like the CEO of the Auckland Chamber of Commerce is has more power than political leadership in this country. And, you know, they they have huge influence. And and the fact that the new prime minister went and saw that institution, the first thing after he became prime minister, he didn't go to the food bank. He didn't go to the, um, you know, city mission in Wellington or in Auckland where people are struggling. He chose to go and meet 
um, you know, the richest people in New Zealand. So that kind of gives us a signal of where labor is heading. And this is why I think labor is equally bad for working class people, because they present a front of of standing with the working class, but effectively they are also the servants or the managers or the salespeople of the status quo of the ruling class. So, yeah. Yeah, and I think this is, you know, we're talking about like where we're seeing Hapkins go or not, uh, what he's being forced to do because there's at least a perception that it's good for his career. These are the the levers that I, I consistently talk about. Like, it feels like if Labour and Hapkins think that more economic populism uh, might be good for helping them win the election, they might start to move in that direction. They're kind of going and trying to trying to go in both directions at the moment. You're convinced by that or not? There is a there's a distinct change uh, from what maybe the the government under Ardern was doing, and I do think we have to be aware of that. He's also signaled that some of the uh, sidelined projects there's going to be some more money free from that, and it might go into new stuff. Uh, and, and what that is is yet to be seen. I think we still, you know, it's still early days um, of Hipkins' tenure. We could see more dramatic shifts. Uh, I, I hope we do. I think it needs to happen. As, as Josephine was saying, we are, we are in an omni-crisis and our most vulnerable uh, communities are taking consistently uh, that has the biggest impact on them. And there's been nothing for them yet. Like a minimum wage rise is great for people who work. And I, I think there's because the minimum wage goes up, benefits go up slightly as well, um, because they are locked together, but it's still nowhere near enough. And especially, you know, we've, we're seeing more long COVID in the community, we're seeing more to, uh, mid to, to long term disability. We've just had these major floods in Auckland, people have lost their homes, there needs to be more. Yes, it's going to cost something, we either have to go into debt, or we have to tax it like that. This is just what it's going to come down to. Like you, ha you can't just say, Oh, we we can't do anything at this point. We're, we're past that point. We're seeing as well that people are going to become more reactionary, you know, and you, you hope that they go left uh, and kind of buy into that rhetoric uh, and, and vote in that direction. Or, you know, they get out on Parliament lawn and get picked up by conspiracy communities and like radical right wing uh, groups, because even if it's disingenuous, they are offering an outlet um, and they're using the language that these people want to hear. So, and that's not saying that those things are good or that those people should be convinced by that. That is happening, and they are. But what's the government's response been? They just get rid of the things that the right-wing, the, the far-right leadership of the organizations are, are yelling for. Like, no, look at, look, at, look at how these communities interact. Like, do the things that stop this from happening in the first place. Don't don't react to them when they, they show up on your front lawn. It's It seems very clear. Uh, but our politicians seem un unable to put those dots together. Yeah, and our um, react, our sort of response to people turning to, you know, conspiracies and that is often to, um, what do you say, morally castigate, judge the people rather than, you know, thinking about what are the reasons, what are the circumstances, what are the structural reasons um, for people turning away from, you know, institutions like, you know, the democracy, the parliament, all those sorts of things, and away to different sort of uh, conspiracies and that. Instead of holding the powerful to account, the response of the media is to, you know, sort of like judge 
um, these people, uh, morally judge them and write them off as deplorables or rivers of filth or something like that. And um, I don't think this is um, helpful at all. I mean, a, a journalist as well as, you know, a left-wing activist must always think about what are the, uh, you know, circumstances. I, I'm interested in the backstory of this. Why have these people become disillusioned? Um, but instead of that, yeah, it was a very easy shortcut to just blame the people and to call them, um, you know, uh, deplorables or... And then act, act as they asked uh, in many ways anyway, right? Like, they didn't make things better. They they just got rid of COVID mitigations wholesale. Like, that's it. Yeah, um, and yesterday well I was... <laughs> sorry, yesterday I was in the parliament. I was... I mean, I work around the parliament and there was like this one-year commemoration of the protest going on. And this random guy came and interacted with me while I was there. And um, I said, oh, are you from Wellington? And he was just this guy running around with long hair and a hat on. And then he's like, yeah, I, I spent most of my time in Wellington, but I grew up in the South Island, um, swimming in the rivers. He didn't tell me where he was from. The first thing he said was that he swam in the rivers in South Island. I was like, this doesn't sound like a fascist to me. <laughs> he just seems like a lovely guy. Like, it's... I, yeah, it's um, it's really weird the way that um, uh, documentaries like Fire and Fury and that um, were portraying these people. If you actually talk to them, a lot of them are just normal uh, people, and a lot of them are poor and working class people. Um, so yeah, it's interesting to know that. Yeah. And I just wanted to say one thing that I think the listeners should know is is the new prime minister appointed his chief of staff last week. And it's a guy called Andrew Curtin, who is a corporate lobbyist. And so he was in high up in the Labour Party, and then he became a corporate lobbyist for this huge New Zealand and Australia lobbying firm called Anacta. And now he's been, you know, uh, taken from there. Uh, directly from corporate lobbying position into the top level of Beehive, he is the top, you know, the top staffer uh, of the prime minister. So it's like, a, a, again, another sign of which direction Labour is taking or continuing to be in. All right. I think that's about us. Um, just fi final ring around. Uh, is, is Chris Hepkins going to do a tax? What do we reckon? Do you think that's on the table at all? I'm going to say no, because, I mean, listen, uh, if I'm putting money on it, the odds are that <laughs> that's a pretty safe bet. But prove me wrong, Chris. Prove me wrong. I'd love to see it. No, I don't think a, I don't think a new progressive tax, but there will be something in the budget. There'll be some handout. Um, there was always going to be something, right? I've been saying this for a year. Like, Robertson's a good politician. He had something up his sleeve for um election year budget there was always going to be something who's yeah. it going to target that's the that's the question for me is who do they think the swing voters are that they can swing in behind um, middle class families with two kids probably uh people have talked about uh trying to do a 2005 and get uni students out um people have talked about support for specific problems that might be one of the things post flood the calculus may have changed there may be an auckland focused package of some kind um but yeah that's what i'm looking for is I don't think there'll be any more big shifts until the budget, and then there'll be one specific policy so that they can run on something that will swing, swing five percent. There'll be something, right? There'll be something like that. But unless a national gets their act into gear, so just, no pun intended, then I think they'll really struggle. They'll, they'll need something to run on um, because Labour will have something by you know two months from now. Just a thing. Any any thoughts? Are they going to do a tax? 
Well, I just, uh, I'm just closely watching what's going on and, you know, paying attention to certain things that are uh, coming to my attention, which I didn't before, like lobbying and this consultancy, consultocracy, as it's being called now. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it was, uh, it was great to chat with you today about all these things. Thank you so much for listening. All right, that's us for another week at 10200. Um, Patreon link in the bio. No, it's not. It's in the summary. Share it. Uh, send it around if you've enjoyed it. Uh, we do the best political analysis of anyone in New Zealand. This is just objectively true at this point. We get everything right, nothing wrong. Um, <laughs> and if you want to be ahead of the game uh, in both international uh, and New Zealand politics, you should be listening to us. We'll catch you next week. Relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is the lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full? The relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is the lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full? Your nation, you hate nationalism. You don't hate your nation, you hate nationalism. No, you don't hate Mondays, you hate capitalism. Oh, you don't hate Mondays.